preaching he, in a certain church, he followed the ushers down the aisles and watched the people as they put their offering in the offering plate. Some gave that hadn't really planned on giving, <laughs> and everybody was offended. And he knew that they were offended. He sensed that anger. And when he got back into the pulpit, he said, I sense that I have offended you today. I've angered you. Why would you be offended at me, a mere mortal who watches you give, when the Lord of heaven and earth watches you give? And the text said that Jesus stood over against the treasury and watched the people cast their money into the treasury. He watches us make our offering. It must have taken a great deal of courage for this little woman wearing widow's weeds to join this affluent possession and cast in her two coins worth about half a penny. Josephus says that when the Pharisees started to make their offering, they would summon a trumpeter to go before them and he would sound a trumpet and when everybody's attention was focused on them, they would get their bags of gold and proudly deposit them. And so this little woman, ashamed and embarrassed at her gift, couldn't get away fast enough and was not there when Jesus gave his exclamation about what happened. She didn't even know how Jesus responded, but we do. And he called his disciples together and said, I want you to see the greatest offering ever given. It is obvious that our Lord weighs our gift on a different set of scales, not how much, but how. And he shows us the difference between superfluity and sacrifice. Superfluity is giving that which could easily be spared, which would hardly ever be missed. It is the giving of spare time and spare change and sacrifice is measured by not what we give, but by what we have left. And if there is anything this story teaches, it teaches this, that as far as God is concerned, in Christian giving, giving is not to pay, but to prove. Now, if I were to ask you this morning, why do we have stewardship emphasis and why does a preacher sometimes preach on stewardship? Most of you would respond like this. Well, we're needing to pay our bills and we're needing to pay the preacher and we need to pay the debt retirement and pay the missionaries. That would be your response. But I tell you this morning that how we give does not pay but prove. For example... How we give proves the reality of our faith. Now, it doesn't take much faith to say God takes care of us. And it's not too hard for us to quote, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And it doesn't take much trust to say 
God will take care of us. But when we begin to transfer that principle over into life and begin to live that, it does require faith. It takes faith to begin a program of tithing when you've always depended upon that to pay your bills. And it takes trust to believe that I can set aside this which really belongs to God, which I've always thought of as mine. And it takes faith and trust to believe that God will provide if we give. For stewardship, really, folks, is coming to practice the belief that if I acknowledge God's possession of all of my possessions, He will provide for my need. The problem is some of us have never really exercised faith in the realm of giving. And I want you to. May I say parenthetically this morning to the people who make up First Baptist Church, may I say this? I have a keen sense of responsibility about why God brought me to this congregation. I really believe that God in some way had a purpose for my being here and led me here. I believe it was of God. And if I read the Bible, I believe this, that the preacher is the shepherd of the flock and he must shepherd that flock as God leads him, and one day he'll be accountable to God for his people. I sense that in my own heart, and I want you to believe that I do. And so when I came here, as I sought the will of God and the direction for my life and yours, I began to preach on spiritual gifts to try to help you find where you have been gifted and your place in the body of Christ. And I did that series on prayer, believing that all that happens in the church must be the result of the intercession and the supplication of his people. And I'm preaching that series on prosperity to help you to see that God wants to bless us. And I am beginning to help you to remind you of the spirit-filled life and how we can walk with God. And I am doing a new series on Wednesday night concerning the koinonia of the body because I desperately want us to enter into every dimension of God as a church and I want him to be able to bless us as his people. And you've got to trust me, my friend, from my heart, I'm asking you to trust me. I want to lead you in to, the, to that new dimension of faith that some of you have never experienced. It's the dimension of trusting God with regard to your possessions. For I believe that one of the greatest tragedies that may ever come in life is for us never to have really exercised faith in the realm of giving. For we give on the wrong end, don't we? It's after we've helped our families. It's after the cost of living. It's after mortgage and installment payments. It's after recreation and, uh, and vacation. It's after education is paid. 
and we give out of the residue, out of the margin, out of the abundance, and there are no red streaks of blood on it. It calls for no demand, and it requires no faith, and without faith, it's impossible to please him. Ben Hayden was speaking at a breakfast meeting, a prayer breakfast in Washington, and he told this story about Henry Kissinger. I guess it was true. It seems unbelievable. But he said Henry Kissinger was speaking at this banquet, Republican banquet, in honor of uh, one of the candidates, a, a, a big fundraising dinner. And he was sitting up at the head table, and they were having the preliminaries. They were eating their meal. And this guy came up out of the audience to, to, the, to the head table and he kind of leaned over in Henry Kissinger's face and said, my name is Fred Parker. He said, well, glad to meet you, Mr. Parker. He said, I'm from Idaho. He said, I'm a banker out in Idaho. He said, Mr. Kissinger, at my table back there are some of the wealthiest people in my state. He said, sitting at my table is the largest potato farmer in Idaho and the largest rancher that has the most cattle. He said, I want, Mr. Kissinger, could you come over at my table and act like you know me? And he said, well, he said, uh, Mr. Parker, he said, uh, you know, I want to speak here in 15 minutes. I don't see any way possible for that. He said, oh, it would mean so much to me and my career if you could just come over and speak my name. And he said, I'm over at table 38. Remember, my name's Fred Parker. And he went back to sit down, and as luck would have it, Henry Kissinger got this telephone call. Emergency message came to the head table. Mr. Kissinger, you're wanted on the telephone. And so he got up to go answer the emergency message, and as providence or luck would have it, he passed right by table 38, and he said to himself, oh, well, what, you know, what could it hurt? And so he went over, and he stood behind Fred Parker, and he kind of put his hand on Fred's shoulder and said, Fred Parker. And Fred Parker looked straight ahead and kind of stoically said, Buzz off, Henry. <laughs> now, I don't know whether that is really true or not, whether that really happened or not. But sometimes I kind of get the feeling that maybe God feels so used. He is so good to us and he pours out his blessing upon us. There's not a one of us in this auditorium this morning that has not been abundantly blessed out of God's resources. And sometimes I have the feeling that maybe God just feels used and abused because we take and we take and we never trust. The way we give proves the reality of our faith. The way we give proves the trustworthiness of our stewardship. Now, every Christian is a citizen of two worlds. Those worlds are so vastly different and in our better moments, we know that both of these worlds must be committed to God. 
that for Christianity, for consistent Christian living, there must be the commitment of all that we possess. And so sometimes we have to face this question, how am I to feel about things? How am I to handle things? If I'm to love God, how, what am I to feel about my, my house and my car? If Jesus is my master, how am I to handle these things? We struggle with the question, what in heaven's name are we to do with earth's things? We know that we are not to love them and we're not to worship them, but does that mean that we must hate them and scorn them? And that's a question that doesn't really have an easy, glib, pat answer. Man knows that he was created in the image of God. That makes him a spiritual being. But he also knows that he was formed out of the dust of the earth, which makes him a material being to live in the earth. How do you reconcile dust and deity? How do you cope with this matter of being both spiritual and material at the same time? How in heaven's name am I to handle earth's things? To get the answer to that, we all have to go back to the inauguration of the creation. And there in the first words of the Bible, God gives us his plan and purpose as he brought this creation into being. And he created man out of the dust and he breathed into him deity and he made him a link. Now listen to this. He made man out of dust in order that man might be a link between God and things. He's man in the middle, if you please. He's God's man placed in management of God's things and he wants us to enjoy them and live to experience all that he's created. He's man, the highest crown of God's creation, placed in dominion over the earth that he's created, and he's placed man in charge of it. But we're to be in charge of it as one who understands that he's handling things that really belong to God, and he must find God's will in the use of them. So that if I could go back to the Garden of Eden and find Adam, I would say to Adam, who owns all of this? And Adam would say, why, this all belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's, my friend, the world and they that dwell therein. And I would say to Adam, then take me to your manager. I want to talk to him. And Adam would say, you're already talking to him. For that's the perspective that God wants us to have concerning our place in the world. We're placed here to be in control, to manage that which really belongs to God. And if that is true then, this earth on which we live is just a testing ground. And I want you to think prayerfully and carefully about this statement. We as parents sometimes allow our children to handle, manage money, and if they do a good job, we give them some more to manage. Could it be possible that God the Father 
is placing us as manager over things that really don't belong to us and in the nature of things we cannot keep and will what we have in heaven depend on how we've managed what we have here? If that's possible, that's a mind-boggling potential. A number of months ago, I went back to my hometown to preach the funeral of the godliest woman I've ever known. She's the lady I talked about in a sermon a few months back who helped my mother so much during the trauma of my, my brother's death. I preached her funeral, went with her husband out to the farm that afternoon to spend a little time with him. He was a retired farmer, very successful, and we stood there at his house on a little rise overlooking the big city of Monday, Texas. And all of his possessions around him, his beautiful farm and farmhouse. And I said to him, Brother Bowden, God has truly, really, really blessed you. He said, yes, God has been so good to me. He said, you know, years ago I stood right out in this field here and I said to God, God, if you've made me manager over all of these things, I want you to know that if you'll give me guidance, if you'll give direction to my life, I promise you I'll manage this as it were yours and I'll use this according to your will. And a few months later, I went back to preach his funeral. And as I stood there over his casket, I could imagine that just a few hours before, God's heaven's doors opened up and God said to him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. Now I'm going to make you ruler over many. For how we give proves the trustworthiness of our stewardship. Number three, how we give proves the depth of our values. We must not forget, my friend, that God demands the position of priority in our lives. And this is the deepest question of all. This is the deepest thing of all. Listen to me with desiring all honesty, our Lord comes to us with this question, who is God in your life, really? Who is God in your life, really? What is first? Who is most important? What has the position of priority? We've always had a problem with that, haven't we? We've always had a problem with values and true wealth. Why, according to our scale of values, Jesus was a failure of history. Charles Allen picks up on the theme and he said, Jesus was a great disappointment to his friends and followers. His own family thought he was a hopeless dreamer. He never owned a house. He never, he never made any money. He never commanded a salary. He never saved any money. Said Charles Allen, he never had any of those things that we call status symbols like flashy car, two television sets, and an honorary degree. The only status symbol he ever achieved, quote, was this a cross on which he died a lonely death. 
We've always had problems with, with values. So it's not easy to answer the question this morning in honesty. Who is God? Who is really God in your life? And what is really first? But how we give, our gift expresses our value. How we spend our money, how we handle our possessions testifies to the depth of our value system. What is most important? You know, not long ago, I began to ask myself that question. And I've concluded this. I hope you're listening. That the, old, that the most important things in life are the things that are going to be left after I'm gone and everybody else. The permanent things, the eternal things. And I've just found two Two eternal things, two immortal things, two things that will outlive life. That is, the Word of God and people. And I made a commitment not long ago in my study, on my knees, true story, that if I never was able to have time to do some of the things in life that I think I would enjoy, if I never have the place to go and some of the things, some of the places I'd like to go, and if I never have the money to do what I want to do, I think I want to do, I am going to do two things. I'm going to pour my life into the Word of God and the place where that Word of God is proclaimed, and I'm going to pour my life into people. For those two things are all that really matters anyway. Now, if you have anything this morning, anything that is usable, commit it first to God's Word and where that Word is being proclaimed and to the care and the concern of people. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, there won't be any pockets on the funeral shrouds. And there's no not-so-old preacher's proverb that says, you don't see any U-Haul trailers hooked onto the back of any hearses. What that meant is that these things that we give our life to will not survive the day of death or the judgment of God. I read somewhere the ship was going down, torpedoed by the enemy, and all of the people were together and they were wondering how they could escape and live. And in the solemn seriousness of that moment, one of the men on deck took off a watch and said, Would anybody like to buy a gold watch? Cheap? And nobody laughed. I was in a building program in West Texas. Under the leadership of God, our educational facilities were just nil. They were deplorable. And so I was leading my church into a building program, and I caught it from about three couples. I mean, they gave me a hard time. And those three couples that gave me such a hard time, they all had beautiful homes, and they drove beautiful cars, and all three of them had Airstream trailers, and they took 
long summer vacations together. And one morning as I was standing at the door of the church, my heart was heavy because of the flack I'd been getting during the week. A little lady came up. Her name was Knatzer. She's going to be with the Lord now, a little widow lady. Couldn't hear it thunder. Sit on the front row and talk out, you know. Scream out to the guy next to her, to, the, to her friend. Couldn't hear it thunder. Sweetest old saint. She came by me and said, I've already given to the offering, but I want to give something special. Then she kind of cried a little and said, I wish I could give more. She stuck something in my pocket. When I reached in my pocket to get it on the way home for lunch, it was four $1 bills wadded up. And after those Airstream trailers have deteriorated and been traded in on new ones, and after all that man possesses has gone up like wood, hay, and stubble, that'll still be spoken of as a memorial to her because it was the proof of the depth of her value system. One last thing. The way we give proves the dependability of God. Have you ever noticed this before? It's found over in the third chapter of Malachi. I just want to read it to you. Listen to this. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this. Look at that. See if I'm dependable. Put me to the test in this, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open up for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Now, that verse doesn't say anything but this. You enter into the faith dimension with regard to your giving and your possessions. And when that happens, trust me, test me, prove me. I'll open up heaven's window and I'll pour out a blessing on you. And I got to thinking about that, and that makes another sermon. What's it going to be like when heaven's windows are open? Can you imagine that? Can you see that picture? One day God just opens up the windows. Have you ever thought of that? And I wondered if that statement had ever been made before. And I went to the concordance to see, and I found it over in the book of Genesis, and it says that when God got all of those in the ark, that he opened up the windows of heaven and the rain came down in flooding judgment. And I thought, what a contrast. Here were people who disobeyed God and rejected Him, and so He opened up the windows of heaven and poured out a flood of judgment. And all God wants of us is that we trust Him in the dimension of our giving and He'll open up the windows of heaven and pour out a flood of blessing. And there's not a Sunday passes, there's not a week passes, but what I don't come into this place to say, Oh God, open up your windows of heaven and pour out a blessing upon us.
And from God's word, he says, I will when you believe. Now this invitation this morning is on this wise. I'm going to ask you today, I'm not, my invitation, this invitation is not for you to come forward and pledge to begin to tithe unless God has laid that on your heart. My invitation this morning is this. Would you say in the bottom of your heart, in the spirit of your spirit, would you say, God, I'm willing to do what you want me to do. It may be in the area of witnessing. It may be in the area of teaching. It may be just in the area of being faithful on Sunday morning, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves as the manner some is. It may be in the realm of giving. It may be with regard to family altar and family life, Christian home life. Are you willing to say this morning in your spirit of spirit, Father, I don't understand how I can do it, but I'm going to do, if you'll help me, I want to do what you want me to do. Some of you will have to come, if that's the case, to put your life here and join this church because that's what God wants you to do. Promise of letter by statement. If you're willing to do that, what I've just said, God, I'll do what you want me to do. I want to ask you just to come and stand out here. You don't even have to face the congregation. Just to stand with me here, facing me, head bowed, as an act of your commitment to that invitation. Heavenly Father, we've already been where you are. And we have felt your presence here in this place this day. And through the witness of Julie, who has sung for us, and through the testimony of this, your word, we have sensed you present. And we know, Lord, that you have what you want us to do. Some of us don't even want what you want. Some of us would have to come to say, Father, I just want to want what your will is. But I pray, Father, that you would help us this morning to respond to do what you want us to do. In this moment of invitation, I pray it. And for Jesus' sake.